This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. In the age of clickbait, we have learned that the headline can deceive. It doesn't tell the same story that the story beneath it tells. It can also tell less than the whole story. Have you seen these headlines, many of them to the effect... Florida Christian School tells gay and trans students to leave. It's a big story. It's a real story. Does the headline tell it? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. And he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. We keep seeing these news reports about Christian schools expelling LGBTQ students. What's going on here? What's the essential fact that journalists have to get in these various stories? Well, first of all, it would help if the journalist wanted to get the facts. It would also help if school leaders were willing in many cases, to provide the facts. But the main frustration I'm having right now, reading a lot of these stories, is there are key facts that are missing. And if you read carefully, I don't think we actually, in some cases, know what's happening. The headline that you referred to, let's go to the NBC report that sort of kicked a lot of this off. Florida student Christian Schools asks J transgender students to leave. Well, that's a perfectly accurate headline. What we don't know is whether the students and their parents ever were told explicitly what the consequences of their school's doctrinal policies were. And in my experience, there are a lot of schools that do a very good job of walking parents and students together through doctrinal statements, lifestyle statements, and other policies at the school. It could be sexual harassment statements. And making sure that when those parents sign that document, and maybe even in many cases, and I think this should increase, the student signs the document as well. They know what they're doing, and they know the teachings of the school they have agreed to at least publicly not oppose those teachings, if you get my distinction there. You may not have to agree with every single thing that's in that statement, but you're going to agree certainly not to oppose it and not to violate it. But what I'm finding as I read more of these stories, increasingly I'm kind of sympathetic in a strange way to some of the parents that are calling up newspapers and calling up TV stations and asking them to write these stories. Because it could be, in many cases, that these parents were never told about these policies, were never told the standards of enforcement, and were not told, say, never had a case made to them for why these statements were important. Let me give you an example. The statement from the mother who's pulling her lesbian daughter out of this school in Hillsborough County, Florida. Here's the crucial part from my perspective. 
NBC News first obtained an email from the Grace Christian School Administrator in June that outlines the school's human sexuality policies. Now notice it's policies, not doctrines. It's very important to learn to discuss these things in terms of doctrines. It told parents that they had to agree with the policies before the students could start the new school year. And then it has a quote from the anonymous mom. From what I read, it's not a new policy, but that this was the first time I was made aware of that policy, the mom said. Next paragraph is crucial. All of her children have attended Grace Christian School. But after reading the email, email from the administrator, she said she couldn't send her younger daughter back there for her junior year. Now, in another story, we have a similar kind of quote, and it has all kinds of vague language in it. The school's policies are not new policies, but the email enforcing them is, as if an email could enforce them. Parents were informed through the June email they must sign documents complying with the standards before students may enroll in them this month. In the August Facebook video, it said, it's true that a student cannot come to our school and be transgender or homosexual. This is rooted in scriptures. We have had these policies in our school since day number one in the early 1970s. What's crucial here is that we don't know from reading these stories whether or not there's been a document signed by parents before. We don't know if students have ever been briefed on these policies. They can say that the policy has existed from 1970s, but that's not the issue that judges are going to want to know about. Judges are going to want to know when parents began signing that document when a policy hidden away in the back of a handbook turned into something that parents and students were asked to affirm. So let me go back to what I said at the start in answering your question. Journalists have to want to know the answers to these questions. And I think a lot of journalists don't care or don't, don't even know the questions exist. They don't even know that freedom of association exists in the First Amendment and that schools have a right to have doctrines and teachings that they impose or defend with their communities. But at the same time, I think there have been a lot, and I grew up Southern Baptist, I've seen this all my life, there are a lot of Christian schools that do not want to talk about these issues, do not want to be explicit about these teachings, and they have not in the past made these teachings clear, and made anyone sign a covenant before attending their school. As a result, a lot of these schools may have big legal problems with courts. So reading down in a couple of these accounts, I discovered that once you dig down there, the policy doesn't just address gay or transgender oh, yeah. students. It, it, it to, to two things. It addresses people who are practicing these yep. behaviors, and it also includes all sorts of uh, heterosexual activity, including premarital sex and pornography. Now, that was, I think, in one, the one account I read, that was fairly well buried there because right. the, the headline was obviously more important than the full story. Yeah, there's a Fox News story out there about this event. 
that has a lot more information. It's a lot longer, and it gets into a lot of other things. And, of course, as someone who has taught on Christian college campuses, the whole idea of enforcing implies that you somehow find out what's going on. And this makes a lot of people uncomfortable, the idea that you have people snooping on each other or tattling on each other or whatever. I will say this, and when I was teaching at a Christian college in Florida a couple of decades ago, we began to address the issue of the lifestyle covenant and wanting to talk about how to defending it, but we only wanted to talk about gay and lesbian students. We were having chapels about that and having all kinds of speakers. And I told the president of the school, and it did not amuse him, I mean, that we have students doing everything but conceiving children on couches in the dorm lobbies of our campuses. But if two gay guys walking across campus even look at each other funny, they can be reported and turned in. So colleges and schools need to do some thinking here about how seriously they take these other sins on sexuality outside of marriage. They need to ask themselves hard questions. Are they being consistent? Are they being fair? I'll give you an example from my own life. Years ago, I had an interesting interview with a name that you may remember. Do you, do you know the name, the Reverend Mel White? Does that ring any bells for you? It does not. Okay. You might remember an organization, however, called Soul Force. And 15 years ago or so, Soul Force was a gay and lesbian organization that was visiting Christian college campuses all over America and trying to do advocacy work for the LGBT students who were on those campuses. And Mel White is a very interesting guy. He's a former evangelical leader and pastor and a very famous ghostwriter who wrote all kinds of books for all kinds of people. He did ghostwriting work for Billy Graham. He wrote the autobiography of Jerry Falwell. And in the years after that, after Mel White came out as gay and became a gay activist. He and Jerry Falwell had a kind of a combative but still warm friendship and were very honest with each other about things involved with these policies. And he considered, frankly, Frank Falwell to be way more honest about these issues than a lot of other Christian college campuses. Well, I was talking to Mel White once when he visited the headquarters of the Campus for Christian Colleges and University, the council when he visited the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. And we got into a discussion of this, and you raised the issue about whether the people are practicing gays and lesbians, whether they're having sexual activity outside of marriage. Well, it's kind of <laughs> provocative to ask, but what kind of sexual activity are we talking about here? And Mel White and I continued to discuss this, and I went, do you believe at this point that schools in their doctrinal statement should explicitly say that they are banning homosexual dating, not sexual intercourse, not explicit acts of sex, that they are forbidding gay and lesbian dating, but they are not forbidding heterosexual dating? In other words, are they prepared to defend the belief that dating is a, in some way a preparation for marriage, that it's a part of a pre-engagement process? 
And Mel White laughed, and he said, I don't think I've met a single Christian college administrator in all the years that I've worked on this who has even thought about that issue. Yet that's precisely what we were arguing about at the Christian college I taught at 20 years ago or so. It was illegal, in effect. You could be expelled from school for gay students to date, even if they explicitly said they were going to live within the doctrinal statement and not have sex outside of marriage. It was illegal for them to date, but it was not forbidden on campus for heterosexuals to date, to make out on couches in the lobby of the dorms, or whatnot. The schools simply hadn't thought about any of these practical issues growing out of doctrines that they claimed to be defending. And they certainly weren't talking to students about them honestly before students signed a lifestyle covenant to attend that school. And I don't want to blame just that school. Most others that I have had any contact with at all. So if you were following this story, where would you go from the initial reports that we've been reading? Well, first of all, I think journalists have to know that there are some basic things that they need. And like I said, it really helps to want to know this information. They need to have asked the school, what is the document? What is the policy? Where is that on your website? The next question I would ask is, when do parents and incoming students find out about these policies? Do they have a chance to ask questions about them before they enroll? Is there a process that they go through, say, with their pastor or with school administrators before they even apply to the school? Are pastors involved at all as kind of character references as a part of the application process? The next question is, when do parents sign these documents? Can you show me a document signed by the parent who is making this complaint? Because if there isn't such a document, and the parents never have signed such a statement, and the students have not signed such a document, can't they make a case that they were not properly informed and had no chance to make an honest disagreement and know the consequences of their actions of attending the school? This whole idea of signing a covenant is crucial. Why? Because you're trying to create a community of association. You're trying to be able to show a court, these are our doctrines. The following people have affirmed these documents. And thus, we should have the ability to enforce these beliefs. These doctrines are an important part of what we believe and what we teach. We want our students and our parents to either fully support them or at least not publicly oppose them. I think the word we're looking for here is they must endorse them. Now, it would also help if a reporter who really wanted to do their job could contrast some of these doctrinal covenants at different schools in the area covered by their newspaper. They should think like a church-state lawyer for a second. 
And if you compare the documents, you'll find that, frankly, some of them are incredibly vague and nobody is ever asked to sign them. It sounds like one interpretation of this current story is that the school has had these policies for a long time and that maybe a lawyer for the school said, hey, folks, we've never told parents about this. We better tell them now in an email and tell them that by enrolling, they're affirming this. That's one way of interpreting the language that's found in these reports. And if that's the case, that doesn't mean that this mother and her daughter shouldn't affirm the covenant. But it does mean that the school should be more honest, that if this mother has had multiple children in the school, why is she just now finding out about these policies, these doctrines, and this covenant, if there is an explicitly signed covenant at all? One other thing I would say, it's also important to realize that liberal schools get to do this as well. Liberal Christian schools can enforce the acceptance of gay and lesbian rights. They can expect people who attend their school to at least not oppose these policies on their campus and not complain if they're asked to go to sessions covering gay rights and asking them to become partners in the process of affirming them. I say this because for several decades now, we've had clashes. I've always covered the ones between the InterVarsity organization and the Ivy League schools. That's where I first met David French, for example. He was a lawyer protecting or fighting for the students on these liberal private campuses. Because in effect, what had happened is these liberal schools had set up doctrinal covenants that affected free speech, that affected religious freedom, and they had never told students about them. And David French was saying these schools at least need to be honest. If you attend Harvard, you're yielding up the following First Amendment rights to be a part of this voluntary association. I covered a case involving Vanderbilt, and the InterVarsity leader at that time on that campus was an ordained Anglican woman who's now a columnist for the New York Times, Tish Harrison Warren. I don't know if you've ever had her on your show. And she was saying that Vanderbilt had every right to set up what she called its doctrine of orthodoxy, that there is no orthodoxy. The orthodoxy of the campus was a liberal United Methodism that everybody had to follow, but they had never been told about it. And so this, this orthodoxy of no orthodoxy is also something that liberals should write out, tell people about before they enroll, and be honest. You're going to give up the following First Amendment rights when you agree to become a student on our campus. Isn't that exactly what we're asking potentially liberal students to do when they attend conservative schools? But how many reporters can work their way through that sequence of ideas and get these stories accurately covered? Like I say, the first thing is you have to want to. So, Terry, I have perused some of these policies that schools, and often they go together to make policies because it's really difficult to kind of go it on your own. So they are adopting policies that are essentially kind of committee-driven. Hmm. They are very complicated, 
They are very lawyerly in a lot of ways. And you have to read pretty far down to get to any questions of what happens if you break the policy. There are a lot of schools, Christian schools, trying to deal with this. Is that in itself a story? Of course it is. I mean, to some degree, they've been able to fudge for decades and just assume that they kind of live in a Christian culture where they didn't have to state these things. And let's be perfectly honest. The world is full of evangelical communities, churches, schools, etc., that want to do this Bible-only Christian thing. I mean, that in effect, they, they seem to think all we have to do is say, we believe the Bible, we believe the Bible is God's Word, and that settles everything. Folks, that does not settle it right now in courts in the United States of America and in the changing culture in which we live. That isn't going to cut it. This old belief that you know has been around for a long time, it was certainly there when I was a child, that kind of doctrinal statements equals creeds, creeds equal Catholicism, and a lot of evangelicals, and Baptists in particular, suffer from what, I forget who said this first, but years ago a witty person referred to this simply as romophobia. You know, that the minute you did anything that looked like Catholicism, like having a creed or having a doctrinal statement, you were no longer Baptist, you were no longer evangelical, because all you needed to say was, we believe the Bible. Well, that's not the America in which now live. And I dare say that pastors are well aware when they stand in their pulpits and look out at their congregations that lots of folks out there disagree with lots of things that their church teaches. And quite frankly, parents and a lot of Christian school leaders are so worried about conflict they're so worried about being accused of being political that they can't even be doctrinal. They can't even stand up and make a case for what they claim their church believes and openly state it and defend it and say, this is what we believe. And we believe this because of Christian anthropology. We believe this because of centuries of Christian teachings dating all the way back to documents from the very, very early church, this is what we believe, and to be a part of our community, such as a Christian school at any level, we're going to ask parents and students to sign a document that says they agreed to live within this policy, and at the very least not openly oppose it. I keep saying that because that's a distinction that, frankly, a lot of people make in their own minds. However, the other thing I should say here is a lot of Christian school people don't want to turn down the enrollments. They're looking at declining numbers of children in the world. A lot of Protestant churches have rates that are identical to dying mainline Protestant churches. And they don't have a lot of students, and they would like the community to attend their school. Maybe they even want it to be an evangelistic outreach. Yes, we'll have non-Christians come to our school, and in chapel we hope to evangelize them. Well, what are those parents signing? What are those students signing? Are they being clearly informed what the school teaches and what the legal and potentially financial consequences are 
of these documents that allegedly they're being told about and asked to sign. I want you to go into a little more detail. Why aren't religious schools honest about issues like sexuality, besides the fact that they're unpracticed at it, as you just said, they've never had to do it before? Why aren't they? Well, I think one of the reasons I hinted at it earlier, they're very, very worried that if they're explicit about how this applies to gays and lesbians, for example, that they might in some way be asked to take the same issues seriously in the lives of their heterosexual students. And like I said, there are Christian colleges where I've seen administrators almost turn into a pillar of salt the minute you even ask them, how are you planning on enforcing these policies on straight students? Are we being kind of selective here? Why aren't we here having chapels that talk about the pornography policies of our school and openly say, we would like you, when you come to this school, to agree that you're going to live on a campus where the Wi-Fi has the following limitations on it and has the following methods for trying to trace to see if you have addictions here that we need to discuss and what kind of discipline would apply. Like I said, two gay guys that look at each other kind of out on a walk across campus date are kicked out immediately, but we have students who are doing everything but cohabitating. In fact, I know of some Christian colleges who have no interest in finding out if heterosexual couples go to their school, are cohabitating in apartments off campus, whether they're actually living together outside of marriage, either in sexually active relationships or not. These, these are big questions, and frankly, a lot of pastors, school administrators would like to wave some sort of Bible-only magic wand and make them go away. But we're not going back to that America. This issue is coming for them. They're going to have to face it, and they're going to have to ask questions. They're going to have to meet with parents, and they're going to have to meet with lawyers and potentially judges and say, these are our beliefs. They have been our beliefs for decades, centuries, two millennia. This is how we tell parents about them. This is how we tell students about them. This is how we live them out. You're not going to be able to get away from these questions today, and you certainly shouldn't mind if journalists ask you about them. What you're describing there is don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad way of saying it. That's a snazzy little phrase. Where'd you get that? <laughs> I'm joking. But the main thing here is I think it's important to realize that a lot of these churches would even say they have doctrinal reasons for not being explicit. You know, we're the priesthood of every believer. Everyone interprets the Bible for themselves. Long ago, I was interviewing some liberal Baptist leaders during the Clinton era, and one of them, off the record, told me, I remember we were standing out near the Capitol, told me off the record, he said, you, you realize that if Bill Clinton ever goes to court and is asked to put his hand on a Bible and swear on this issue of did he have sex with Monica Lewinsky, he's going to say 
that as a Baptist, he does not have to answer that question. Because Baptists get to interpret for themselves what the Bible means, and thus he does not believe that he lied when he said that he did not have sex with that woman. Because in his mind, the sexual activities they were involved in did not constitute sex, and he's a Baptist. And you can't challenge a Baptist's ability to interpret the Bible for themselves. So this is a, a question that a lot of pastors and school leaders need to think about, but they're going to have to think about it. With about a minute here, that obviously, something we haven't discussed explicitly, includes secondary education, Christian colleges too. Well, I mean, yeah, Christian colleges have dorms. They have a lot more contact and a lot more dating going on than <laughs> safe to say elementary schools or even middle schools. But the same issues exist at all levels of Christian education. And the issue of having a clear doctrinal covenant, openly defending it to parents and students, and having them sign it as a precondition. You could, you could, they could re-sign it every year as a part of their enrollment process. You're going to have to be clear or you're going to have a judge look at you and say, you mean you never told this mother about this? You're throwing her daughter out of school with the loss of all the money that they've invested in your school? You're throwing it out and you never told them about it? Can you show me a document they signed? I think a lot of school administrators are not thinking about those questions and are not ready to answer them. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the Weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.